morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans, by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, October 12th, we are studying Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. The moment has finally come. The people of Israel crossed the Jordan River to enter the promised land. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Clint Poppy. Pastor Poppy serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Pastor Poppy, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Well, thanks for having me. Always a great honor. We're in Joshua chapter 3 this morning. Pastor Poppy, help us to get started with some context. What should we know as we prepare to look at this text? I think when most people think of the book of Joshua, they think of uh, the uh, walls of Jericho crashing down, uh, mighty army battles and miracles. But uh, before all of that has to take place, they need to get into the promised land. And so Joshua begins with um, God giving Joshua the commission or the command to uh, officially take over for Moses. And uh, I think sometimes this kind of goes by the wayside, but it's very, very important. Um, Moses has been such a major, major influence in the life of the people, and now Moses is gone. Uh, Joshua is the new leader, but can they put their faith in him? Can they put their trust in him? Is God with him the same way that he was with Moses? And so these uh, first few chapters are going to be God's confirmation on the fact that Joshua is indeed the man that God has chosen to lead the children of Israel. So in uh, chapter one, God commissions Joshua. Joshua assumes command. In Joshua 2, we have the um, the great story of the uh, spies that go in and uh, check out Jericho to see if uh, things are maybe a little bit different than they were 40 years ago. We have the encounter with uh, Rahab and uh, Uh, all of the drama and uh, intrigue that goes along with that. And then uh, in Joshua 3, now uh, God is uh, ready to give the command to Joshua to tell him how it's going to happen, where it's going to happen, and to prepare the people. And in the meantime, God is establishing Joshua as the leader before the people of God, which is extremely important for their confidence as they're about to make this uh, big trek. Yeah, so we, we kind of hit the pause button on some of those accounts that we know quite well from the book of Joshua, particularly when it comes to Jericho. The city was introduced in the previous chapter, and the conquest will come in chapters in chapter 6. But now we're going to actually get into the promised land, and as you said, a lot of a preparation for that event and establishing Joshua yet again in the eyes of the people as the Lord's chosen leader for them. 
I do think that what we see in, in today's text and in into chapter four as well is is reasonably well known. The event of the crossing of the Jordan River, I, th- I think, is in the minds of many faithful Christians. One of the things that you have in your notes, Pastor Poppy, is is a desire to talk a little bit about liturgical context. So I'm curious what you mean by that. What's the liturgical context for Joshua 3? Well, the uh, this particular text, uh, Joshua 3, does not appear in the uh, three-year series of readings, but it does appear in the one-year series of readings, uh, selected verses from Joshua 3. Uh, they skip kind of the repeated parts, but it is the uh, alternate Old Testament reading in the one-year series for the baptism of our Lord. And, you know, whenever there's a great uh, water event that uh, happens in Scripture, we can we can generally make some sort of a connection to Christian baptism. And uh, the liturgical calendar does that for us. You know, Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan River. And so uh, we're, we're thinking about baptism. We're thinking about God's presence, his real presence, not uh, not only with Jesus at his baptism, but with all Christians in their baptism. So to uh, to keep that uh, context in mind, there, there are many major themes, but uh, that particular baptism connection with uh, the crossing of the Jordan is a big one. So I, I, I'm glad you brought that up, and because when I think of baptism and the water events of the Old Testament that point to it, it's not that this one doesn't come to mind, but other ones come to mind first. So, for example, the flood and the crossing of the Red Sea, both of those get mentioned by Luther in his, his prayer that still is used by many Lutheran churches in the rite of holy baptism. I don't think the crossing of the Jordan River does, but I... I I'm glad we're going to get a chance to look at that today because I think it adds another, it helps us to see what happens in baptism from a, a slightly different angle. You know, in in the crossing of the Red Sea and in the flood, both of those, at least in my mind, think I think about how the Lord defeats our enemies, sin, death, and the devil. He rescues us from those. There's that death and also resurrection. The crossing of the Jordan, what I think that that adds to the baptismal imagery is that it puts the emphasis on on the entering into life aspect of it, because there's not really enemies that Israel is fleeing from here or enemies that they're being delivered from. Here they're they're entering into the promised land. And I, I don't know, there's something about that that I think I, I don't always connect to baptism that I think this text will help us do. It, it is, uh, in a sense, when you compare it to the Red Sea crossing, it is uh, maybe a secondary or a minor miracle. But several places in Scripture, Isaiah 43 comes to mind, where the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the River Jordan are linked together as uh, great acts of God uh, delivering his people. They're not fleeing from enemies, but they're going into the promised land and, uh, you know, somebody else lives there. And right. so uh, the book of Joshua, you know, when you read it, the first several chapters are, are exciting and power packed and you've got battle after battle going on. And the last half of, cha- of uh, Joshua oh, might be maybe a little tedious or maybe even a little bit boring as uh, the land that has been conquered is now allotted to the people. The uh, the enemies are driven out, so bad news for the enemies is good news for the children of God. 
you know, there are going to be other pastors who are going to handle those chapters at the end of Joshua, Pastor Poppy, and, and God grant them strength to, to go through those texts. <laughs> we'll pray for them. It is it is the word of God. And, and you're right, they, they're often the texts that we skip over, but, but we will find goodness from the Lord in those texts as well. We get one of those very exciting moments here in Joshua chapter three today. So let's let's start reading. This is Joshua chapter three, beginning at the first verse. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about two thousand cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So, when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. That's our text for today. It's Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. So, Pastor Poppy, get us started. We're moving out a little bit here in in the first verse. Joshua rose early. They set out from Shittim. What do we see at the beginning of our text? Well, at the beginning of our text, we have kind of a preparation, and uh, I think it's important to note the the Hebrew style of writing. The author of Joshua is... uh, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it is it has a real dramatic feel and flair. Uh, he's not in a hurry to tell the story, and yet we don't get a lot of extra superfluous kind of details or comments. The, uh, the story is dramatic. The story is steady. The story is progressive. There is action that is going on here. And something to remember as you're, as you're reading, chapters three and four, which 
you know, normally when we're not studying like we are today, three and four should be read together because they are a unit. But when you're when you're reading this, um, Joshua is not always strictly chronological. You know, first this, then this, then next. Um, sometimes an event is introduced, and then it takes a step back and gives more details, and then it goes to the next thing, and then it takes a step back and gives more details. That's kind of part of that dramatic rhythm and flow of reading. And it's also um, Hebrew style to uh, recount a story in that way. And uh, we have this, uh, this, t- this town, Shittim, which is about eight miles away from the Jordan River Bank, and God is telling them, okay, it's time to um, uh, pull up your tent pegs, which is literally what the Hebrew says here to journey on, uh, pack things up, we're going to make this journey, and then we're going to wait there three more days. Uh, something big is really happening. He's setting the stage for that. Okay. Yeah. I really appreciate you reminding us that chapter four does need to go with chapter three and the just that Hebrew style of sometimes you advance in the story and you think you're you're done, but then you have to go back because there's another part to pick up. And so it it's not always strictly chronological as we might like, but it, it works perfectly in the Hebrew mind. So that, and I, I was even thinking about this in my introduction, you know, on the one hand, we're going, we did hear as we read chapter three, that the people passed over the Jordan River we're going to hear that detail again in chapter four. And so, well, well, when did they go over the Jordan River in chapter three or four? Well, yes, they did. They went over and Joshua tells us that from another, a number of angles to emphasize different aspects. So I really appreciate that as we, we go through this chapter and then chapter four tomorrow. So the, the stage is set, is set for them to cross the Jordan River. They've waited three days and then the officers of the camp command the people. And I, I would imagine, although it doesn't say here, that the Lord tells Joshua, Joshua tells the officers, and then the officers tell the people, so that all this is coming from the Lord. Uh, what are the instructions given to the people here from the outset concerning their crossing of the Jordan River? Well, first of all, they, they're uh, going to have this three-day wait that we've heard about, and uh then they're ta- told and taught about the importance of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is um, the the focal point uh, many times in uh, the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is uh, mentioned uh, nearly 200 times in the Old Testament. And so the Ark is the visible presence of, of God in the people. If we want to want to talk in uh, modern Lutheran terms, it uh, it's the real presence of God. And uh, when you when you set out, you're going to follow it. Don't get too close. Uh, we want to keep a safe distance because unholy people can't come directly into the presence of a holy God. And so you're going to keep your distance, and uh, all of these things are going to happen. And then in verse five. The people are told to consecrate themselves. We hear that word consecrate most often in the uh, service of the sacrament, in the divine service, where the bread and wine are consecrated. They're they're set apart for special use. And uh, God has a special use for the people as they are going to uh, participate in this uh, great and dramatic 
um, miracle. There's no other way to say it. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do wonders among you. We're not told exactly what they are to do, but the people know. The people know that when they set themselves apart, uh, they're not given a, a, a ritual or a routine. We're talking about repentance and faith and devotion and um, all of the reverence, all of these things that come with preparing ourselves, whether it be for the divine service on Sunday morning now, or to witness the mighty hand of God as they're about to do. Talk a little bit more about the Ark of the Covenant, which, as, as you said, is a central part of what happens here in Joshua chapter 3 and, and into chapter 4. You know, I mean, on the one hand, as you said, like this is God's presence among His people, so this is this is good. On the other hand, there's this need for a distance that's established here, which I, I think, on, on the one hand, from a practical level, there's got to be some distance so they can see the Ark as a, a you know, this is a big group of people we're talking about about that they're going to cross the Jordan River. But on the other hand, there's a the theological need for you, know, you don't just go up to the Ark and and touch it, for example, that's dangerous. So talk a little bit about the Ark as God's presence, and yet not being able to go right up next to it. And and especially, you know, what does that have to do with us as Christians? Because this, this box, the Ark of the Covenant, isn't around anymore. Uh, well, unless you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> and uh, then you know that the Ark is uh, hidden in a warehouse. No, see, and and here's where, where we run into problems, where we get our theology from Hollywood. And, um, you know, sometimes that's accurately depressed deployed and uh, displayed, but most of the time it's not. And so we get this uh, from Hollywood, we get this kind of magical uh, understanding of the Ark of the Covenant. And if you possess the Ark, like some uh, secret token, then you have magical, mystical powers. And, uh, you know, some people even think that way today. But the Ark of the Covenant, uh, God commanded that the Ark be built. If you have a, uh, a decent Bible with um, uh, pictures and things, oftentimes you'll have pictures of the ark that are displayed. And uh, it is literally the uh, footstool of God, God's real presence here on earth. The uh, Ten Commandments, uh, the uh, uh, staff of Aaron that budded, certain things are inside the ark. But the ark is the um, real presence or the symbolic presence of God among the people. And when we think of the real presence of God among or in the midst of the people, this is an obvious connection to the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in John chapter 1, John 1, 14, the word became flesh, and most English translations would say, made his dwelling among the people. That's literally, he tabernacled among the people. What was the uh, chief item in the tabernacle? The Ark of the Covenant. And so we have God really visibly present among his people. And when we have that ark, like you said, there's a practical part of it. Uh, you, can't, you can't have a mob of people gathered around it. The people in the back won't know where they're at, where the ark is, and where to go. So that practical element is there. But more importantly, the holiness of God 
is represented in the Ark of the Covenant. And this uh, this distance, uh, imagine, uh, it says here 2,000 cubits. So uh, what is that? Well, it's about 3,000 feet. And uh, so think Think of that in terms, you know, there's uh, 300 feet in a football field, so that's about 10 football fields, or roughly a half of mile, half a mile distance, so that 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 reverence and that devotion and that awe can still be there for the people. It's God in their midst, and they're not going to forget it. Yeah, I mean, the idea of especially when you attach that to the consecration that happens in verse 5 and the keeping of the distance is, is reminiscent of what happens at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus when they first get there, that there's a need to consecrate themselves and to keep their distance from the Lord coming down the mountain. Something similar here, as the Lord prepares to lead his people into the promised land. In verse 6, we hear Joshua tell the priests to actually do this, to take up the ark and then take their place on in front of the people. I don't don't think we've said too much about the role of the priests with the ark of the covenant and, and Joshua's command to them here. Well, you know, the priests are specifically appointed by God. And, uh, you know, sometimes we get things a little bit uh, confused or mixed up because, you know, we don't have a Levitical or uh, Melchizedek priesthood among us today that's been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There are some obvious connections to the uh, Office of the Holy Ministry, but not directly so. Uh, The priests come from the tribe of Levi. Levi. And so all of the priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Only uh, only direct descendants from Aaron can be priests. And so these are the uh, appointed leaders uh, for worship. Um, and here we have other uh, ceremonial duties as well. But these are appointed by God, and they are not to do their own thing, or not to make it up as they go, but they're to carry out the commands of God, especially with regard to worship and reverence, on behalf of the people. So they're the ones who take the Ark of the Covenant. They, again, in verse 6, take their place before the the people. We've not gone into the Jordan River just yet. In verse 7, the Lord speaks to Joshua and says, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, as as he had done with Moses. So you mentioned this from the outset, Pastor Poppy. What's, what is the Lord, what is his intention regarding Joshua here and, and what that means for the people following Joshua? Well, it's not about the man Joshua, although in some respects it kind of is, but the man Joshua is the one that uh, God has chosen and appointed to be the leader in uh, Moses' footsteps following in Moses' stead. Moses is dead. Moses is gone. And uh, there's nothing worse than having a group of people without a leader. And so God provides for them a leader. Now, the um, challenge is to get the people of God to look to Joshua instead of sitting around and uh, whining and complaining that Moses isn't there and uh, Moses would have done it better or Moses would have done it this way. God needs to confirm to the people that uh, that, uh, Joshua is the man, the man that God has chosen. And so God is going to do this for the benefit of the people. He's going to exalt Joshua. He's going to do it in a way very, very similar to the crossing of the Red Sea. The parallels are obvious, and they'll be obvious to the people. 
And in so doing, in exalting Joshua, not for the sake of Joshua, but for the sake of the people, so they have confidence, confidence that the word Joshua is speaking is the word of God. And so God is using Joshua, exalting Joshua, not so that Joshua gets a big head, but so that the people of God can truly follow his word. Well, and, and the fact that it's not Joshua exalting himself, but rather the Lord exalting Joshua, that, that hopefully will help Joshua from getting too big ahead. Yeah, and I think I think pastors uh, and other you know lay leaders in the church can learn from this as well. Um, being exalted in the eyes of the people, uh, that's God's business. That's not our business. And, uh, you know, the best way to exalt the office of the holy ministry or the royal priesthood is to preach the word of God in its truth and purity and exalt Jesus as the uh, one and only Savior from sin. God will take care of the rest. When we get that mixed up and we start trying to exalt ourselves or uh, exert our power or our authority, uh, it always fails. It always backfires. And so the Lord is the one to exalt Joshua here. And this is a, you know, this is going to be a pretty key moment in the history of the people of Israel. They've been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And while there has been the miraculous provision of manna and quail all along, it, it's probably been a little humdrum in the eyes of the people. They haven't seen too many mighty signs in the wilderness. It's been a little while since anything has, quote, happened. And and here the Lord is about to do this great wonder through Joshua to confirm him as the leader, to exalt him in the eyes of the people, and to bring the people into the promised land, just as he has long foretold. We're going to go ahead and take our break right there. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We are looking at Joshua chapter 3 today with Pastor Clint Poppy. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, October 12th. We're studying Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 to 17 with Pastor Clint Poppy. He serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Pastor Poppy, prior to the break, we left off about verse 9. The Lord has spoken to Joshua. He has told Joshua what he's going to do. And now Joshua relays that word to the people. What do, what do we hear from Joshua in verse 9? Uh, in verse 9, Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And uh, I think that's what 
every faithful pastor uh, wants today. Uh, you know, come to church, listen to the Word of God. Not only hear the Word of God, but listen to it, believe it, take it to heart. And uh, that is exactly what's happening here. And, and we're going to see Joshua be a, a faithful pastor, preacher of God's Word as as he goes forward, not only in chapter 3, but elsewhere in the book of Joshua, that every time Joshua receives a word from the Lord as to what to do, he's going to relay that to the people so that they might carry it out. And as we've, as we've already remarked in the book of Joshua, at least so far, uh, things have gone pretty well for this new generation. It, it, I know it's not always going to turn out that way in the book of Joshua. There are going to be some moments of unfaithfulness. But so far, this new generation has been faithful in listening to the word of the Lord that has come through Joshua. And so Joshua in verse 10 now begins to lay out for them what is going to happen. And, and he says, you're going to know that the living God is among you, which this is, I mean, that's that's pretty big. This is That's what God desires. He wants his people to know he's among them. Tell us about that part before we look at those seven nations briefly. Well, the uh, the name, the title that uh, Joshua gives to the, to the Lord at uh, this point in time is telling uh, because all of the idols of all of the people of Canaan where, where we're about ready to cross into, they're all dead. Um, you know, they can, they can have the fake appearance of life, but there is only one living God. And this living God is the one true God, Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this living God is not only living, but he is living and powerful and active. And you are about to uh, witness this uh, living active power of God, not from afar, but he's going to be in your midst. He's going to dwell in your midst. And as he goes before you, um, this is uh, wherever the Ark of the Covenant is, there's always a law gospel theme that's going on. Uh, if you touch the Ark uh, uh, with unauthorized hands, um, you're going to pay for it with your life. But as judgment goes out to those who are opposed to the one true God, the living God, that judgment on the enemies is grace and peace and comfort and forgiveness and confidence to his people. Now, Joshua tells the people that the living God among them will drive out seven different nations. And we hear lists like this one exactly, or sometimes there may be another nation or two that are included. Just give us a brief rundown of, of who we're talking about, the people that are going to be driven out before the children of Israel. Well, first, I think it's important to point out that there were more more than likely, uh, many more than uh, seven different nations or people groups that were living in uh, in the promised land in Canaan. And seven is used here uh, not only to highlight the biggies, but seven is used here as a number of completeness. God does that quite often. That uh, that seven number means it's going to be total. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be total judgment and uh, total peace and prosperity for you. The Canaanites, uh, that's kind of a general or a broad term that is used. And uh, uh, Canaan is the son of Ham. Ham was the uh, disobedient son of Noah that uh, mocked and ridiculed his uh, father. And several of these people groups, these nations that are named, are listed as descendants of Ham and 
Canaan. Uh, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites are all direct uh, the direct line from Ham. And so whenever you have the, the Canaanites or anything that's flowing from Ham, um, you have people that are apostate. You have people that are unbelievers. You have people, you have people that are against the one true God and, um, are pictures or models of unbelief. We don't know what happened to the Canaanites. They're, uh, they're lost to history. The Hittites were really, really big at the time of uh, Joshua, and they disappear about the 12th century BC. We're not really sure what happened to them. Uh, the Hivites, uh, we don't know a lot about them. We know that uh, uh, the the towns of Gibeon and Mizpah were um, big Hivite territories. Little is known about the Perizzites, but uh, they didn't live in cities. They were rural people. The uh, Girgashites, uh, little is known about them. Tradition says they uh, fled to Africa, and that's where they ended up. The uh, Amorites, um, Amorites are mountain people, and earlier... Uh, in Joshua um, and uh, earlier in the uh, wilderness wanderings, num- Numbers 21, uh, Sihon and Og were defeated, and uh, those were Amorite cities. And the uh, Jebusites, although not a lot is written about them, they're also mountain people, but the Jebusites were in charge of the city of Jebu which is um, modern-day Jerusalem. And they were in control of the city of Jerusalem all the way up until the time of David. And so we have this kind of composite group, um, maybe the, uh, the, the top seven of unbelief and uh, evil against the one true God. And based on the way the one true God speaks, you know what the outcome is going to be. He is going to win the victory. They're melting. So he, he, They're melting, uh, as we saw in chapter two. They're melting at just the thought of the children of Israel coming over. That's right. And that will be their exact reaction by chapter five when they do, when the people are already all the way across. These very people are going to be melting in their hearts with fear at the one true God. And so the Lord here in chapter three directs his people's attention, again, not to not to be afraid of these nations, but rather to pay attention to him and to watch him. So behold, he says in verse 11, the ark of the covenant of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan and, and then take 12 men. So again, we see this emphasis on the ark. How does, how does Joshua continue to instruct the people here in, in verses 11 and 12? Well, they see the ark. The, uh, the ark is the real presence of God among them. That is to give them confidence that everything that God has said is uh, going to happen and, and happen for them. Um, in uh, in verse eleven, when it says, uh, "Behold, the ark of the covenant goes before you," um, Joshua uses a different term for God. He says, um, "The uh, living God is among you," and then he says, "The Lord of all the earth." Um, the entire earth belongs to God, 
and uh, don't think that he can't control what's going on or even who lives and dwells in these places. The Lord of all the earth is fighting for you, is going before you. The ark is the focal point, not Joshua, not the priests, but the ark. And that means God is with us. God is going for us. The 12 men, the 12 tribes, um, this is comprehensive. Everybody is included. All the people of God are participating and will benefit from what's about to happen. So we've got 12 men from the 12 tribes, and then Joshua begins to give them a clue as to what's going to happen. What does he say in verse 13 to the people? Uh, when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Uh, what, what an amazing text here. Everything has been building, the drama, the anticipation has been building to this point. And now God tells the people through Joshua exactly what's going to happen. As your forefathers crossed on dry ground through the Red Sea, when God piled up the waters in a heap, there's no uh, no accident that God uses the word here in Joshua 3 to connect those two great miracles. They're going to rise up in a heap, and, uh, you know, um, the waters that uh, we're going to find out, uh, it's not a trickle. Uh, the waters are going to pile up in a heap, and um, you're not going to have to wade through the mud. You're going to walk across on dry ground. That's right. So this is, I mean, this is where Joshua begins to reveal just how incredible a sign the Lord will give for his people. And again, this is going to serve the purpose of cementing Joshua as their leader, confirming that he is the Lord's chosen leader for them in place of Moses. So uh, keep take us through the text, verse 14 and, and 15. What, what's going on, Pastor Poppy? Well, in verse 14, um, we, we have one of those spots where we kind of, br- Joshua has told everybody what's going to happen, and now we back up and it actually happens. So when the people set forth, uh, set out for from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, verse 15, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped into the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Verse 16, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. So we have this running narrative of everything that's happening, and uh, as if this miracle isn't enough. You know, the Jordan uh, at its average is uh, about a hundred yards wide, and uh, the average depth of the Jordan is about 12 feet deep. That's average. Uh, 
But at this time of the year, and uh, in our in our way of thinking, this is probably somewhere between the middle of March and the middle of April. Uh, the Jordan is always at flood stage. This is a part of God's uh, providence for the people. The uh, waters spill out of their bank. When the waters recede, it leaves uh, the rich topsoil on top, and uh, it's it's very fertile. And uh, this is the way God provides. But it's the absolute worst time to cross the river. In fact, it's impossible to cross the Jordan River during flood stage. Uh, you know, unless you have a bridge of some kind, there isn't one. And it highlights the immense miracle. Maybe not quite as big a miracle as the crossing of the Red Sea, but pretty darn close. Well, and the fact that the water stands up in a heap, that's a that's a connection to the Red Sea crossing, right? Absolutely. The same words, the same terminology is used, and it's, it's not an accident or a coincidence that uh, that term is used here. Remember, God is exalting Joshua so that the people have confidence in Joshua's leadership and that the words coming out of Joshua's mouth are actually from the Lord. And so that's why this miracle uh, replicates in many ways the uh, dramatic crossing of the Red Sea miracle. So just as the people after the crossing of the Red Sea, the, there in Exodus chapter 14, the, the text says that the people trusted in the Lord and in Moses, a similar effect is in mind here, that the people would put their trust in the Lord and in Joshua. And, and again, in the sense that they know that this is the man God has appointed to lead us as his people. And, and the word that we hear from him, we can trust that's the word of the Lord just as much as the word we heard from Moses, we knew that that was the word of the Lord. This this matter too of the the fact that the Jordan is in its flood stage at this point, you know, highlights the the I think it highlights for us particularly in our day and age the miraculous nature of this of the, what happens here, as opposed to say some sort of a naturalistic explanation. Certainly, God can use means to accomplish a miracle. There's there's no doubt about that. But in a text like this, with the Jordan being at the flood stage, I think we simply have to recognize how the text is, is telling us the Lord did this and, and that's that. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think critics of Scripture are, are always looking for things to point out, uh, seeming inconsistencies. And many times those seeming inconsistencies can only be explained by the powerful hand of God, a miracle of God. Even, uh, let's, let's say there's a, uh, there's a landslide, um, 17 miles up the river at Adam, and uh, the the water is uh, somehow stopped in some naturalistic way. It would take weeks for the riverbed to dry out so that the people could cross on dry ground. And this happens immediately. And so um, people people who want to uh, criticize or, or tear apart God's word um, need to repent and just let the word of God speak. Um, and just as Joshua says, um, you'll hear the word of the Lord and listen and believe. And that's exactly what's happening here. Uh, that's right. So you, and you mentioned some geography. Adam is, is like 17 miles away from where they are. So that's the, I mean, that's hard to, hard to picture, but we're talking about a lot of water here that's going to stop 
for the the people to actually cross over because we're talking about a huge number of people. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about quite a bit of volume of water, maybe not as much as the Red Sea, but this is no small thing that the Lord does. Well, you have to remember it's flood stage. Uh, the water is flowing. And uh, because the Jordan isn't real wide, uh, it flows really fast. And so uh, all of this highlights the miracle. And, you know, the people don't cross over a single file. You know, we have a huge group of people that have been amassed during the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And so uh, as they keep their distance from the ark, the ark, which starts out, uh, the priests are at the brink, and then that's when the water backs up. But the, the text tells us they move to the middle. They move right to the middle of the Jordan. And there they are in the middle and all the people are passing around them and they can see the ark and they know who is doing this miracle. It's not Joshua. It is God himself. That's how big and how powerful and majestic this is. They're soaking it up and they can't help but thinking. Uh, but help but think, you know, we didn't get a chance to see the um uh, Red Sea miracle, you know, but, you know, we've heard it from our parents and our grandparents. Now we're living it. That's right. And so in verse 17, there's there's more connections to that Red Sea miracle. And that's where we do hear what, what has actually happened. As you, you mentioned, the priests who have the ark, and again, there's the ark standing firm and central in this text. They stand firmly on dry ground and all Israel passes over on dry ground. You've mentioned that detail of dry ground several times, Pastor Poppy. What's the significance? Well, you know, God has promised them that he's giving them land. And, uh, you know, when you think of land, uh, land that you want to possess, land that you want to farm, land that you want to build a house on, you uh, you don't do that in the marsh. You don't do that in the bog. You don't do that. Uh, you, you want something firm and solid. And the fact that God has provided not only a break in the water so the people can get across, but has thought so far ahead as to provide for them safe passage on firm, dry ground. Uh, you know, we have a firm and solid ground that we stand on with our faith. And that uh, solid ground, you know, all other ground is sinking sand, you know the hymn. But uh, that firm, solid ground that we stand on is not the riverbed of the Jordan, but on the one who was baptized in the Jordan for us and for our salvation, the rock, Jesus Christ. The the language dry ground, again, connects to the way they cross over the Red Sea. Amen. Similar language in Exodus 14, right? That they, once again, the people of Israel, they cross on dry ground, which of course stands in contrast to the way when Pharaoh and his army tries to follow them, you, you get the sense that, you know, it's not dry for them. So again, miraculous. But the the nature of dry ground, I think also can point us back even farther in the Old Testament to the creation account where the, the Lord, you know, separates the water and the land and he, he makes this dry ground. And I think that there's something to that in both the Exodus event and in, in Joshua here with the or the Jordan River crossing, that in, in both cases, the Lord is is making his people a new creation. That he's he is, you know, I mean, think about the uh, Jesus to Nicodemus, that you must be born from above or you must be born again. There's this idea of new creation, new birth. There's the baptism connection again. And the, the dry ground language is another 
connection to all that. That uh, that dry ground connection in the uh, crossing of the Red Sea, God's word tells us that uh, God blew a mighty breath from his nostrils and dried out the ground. Um God can do whatever he wants to do. And that word picture just amazes me every time I think about it. Uh, God probably did something very similar here, that connection back to God separating the the waters and, and uh, creating the dry ground makes a perfect connection to the new creation in holy baptism. And uh, that's, that's a great a hook or a great connection because the uh, the church throughout all the ages has looked at God's gift of baptism as a new creation. The eighth day, uh, that's why most baptismal fonts, especially in Lutheran churches, have eight sides on them to remind us of that new creation theme. So we've got that connection to baptism, and you brought that out from the very beginning, Pastor Poppy. You said that parts of Joshua chapter 3 are or can be used as an Old Testament text in the one-year lectionary for the baptism of our Lord. So again, I mean, how does how does this text connect to baptism, Jesus' baptism, our baptism? Uh, what do we see from Joshua 3 that that teaches us about this new life that's ours in Christ. Well, when we think of water, we think of water being a destructive force. Um, you know, people cower in fear when a flood is coming. Or, uh, you know, recently we've had some hurricane activity in the United States, and uh, hurricanes not all not only bring uh, devastating winds, but uh, they bring torrential rains and flooding. Uh, we've seen sharks swimming in the streets in, uh, in Florida. And so, you know, water is a destructive force, and God uses that potentially destructive force in water to destroy sin, death, and the power of the devil, and to bring us to new life. The children of Israel are passing from um, wilderness wanderings. Uh, we can uh, see that kind of connection as uh, we, the people of God, live in a type of wilderness on this side of heaven brings them across the waters, the dangerous waters, into the promised land. And so we see that uh, that gift of forgiveness, life, and salvation, new life that we have in and through Jesus Christ. Also, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan. And, uh, you know, sometimes Christians have a, uh, a difficulty connecting the baptism of Jesus, who's baptized as an adult, to uh, the baptisms that we see and witness and participate on uh, Sunday morning in our uh, services. But Jesus is baptized. Jesus has no sin. And Jesus enters into the water. It's like the entire sin of the world is in this dangerous, turbulent water. And Jesus, uh, word picture here, like a giant sponge, sucks up all of our sin and delivers to us the benefits of his work, which ultimately are Good Friday and Easter. Well, you mentioned early on when we were talking about the Ark of the Covenant that this is God's presence among his people. This is his real presence. And when we think about Jesus as you know, the Word made flesh for us, he is Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, maybe, you know, another way we can think about this is that Jesus is the one who who goes through 
he, I mean, he goes through, he stands there in the Jordan River so that we cross over. I mean, I'm kind of thinking like along the lines of, of Psalm 23, that, that he has walked through the valley of the shadow of death for us. And now he carries us with him across such that what, I mean, this is an example or a, maybe a, a foreshadow, a type of what Jesus has come to do to go through death into resurrection for us and then to carry us with him through death into resurrection, you know, and, and how are we connected to him in holy baptism? I, I love that connection. And, uh, you know, I'm always looking for homiletical hooks. Uh, and uh, one that uh, came to mind as you were talking is in the gospel of John, uh, after, um, after they, uh, have the, uh, upper room discourse and the high priestly prayer. They sing a hymn and they cross the brook Kidron and uh, go to the uh, Mount of Olives. And you have that similar crossing of water where Jesus is leading his disciples. We know where Jesus is going. And uh, what what is the uh, brook Kidron uh, famous for? Well, the brook Kidron oftentimes was bloody because the animal sacrifices that took place in the temple oftentimes found their way uh, bloodwise into the brook Kidron. And uh, so we have that uh, sacrificial connection crossing the water for our salvation. Uh, there's so many of these water connection themes that uh, you could preach a whole sermon series on it. That's right. And, and indeed, the, the scriptures invite us to consider those sermons over and over again as they give us texts like Joshua 3 and others that show how God delivered his people through water. And now he continues to deliver us through the water connected to the word, holy baptism, founded by our Lord Jesus Christ, given to us so that we might be connected to his death and resurrection and led into eternal life. Pastor Clint Poppy is pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, helping us today with Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Pastor Poppy, thanks for being our guest today. It's always a great honor. Thanks for having me. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Joshua, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.